This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. Imagine, if you will, <clears throat> that today is your birthday. And let's say it's a, an important birthday. Maybe you're turning 21, which means you still have your life ahead of you, but you've lived a little bit, enough to know that things aren't um, always easy, that life isn't a fairy tale, and yet there's possibility. And you're supposed to work. You work in a restaurant, and you had asked someone to cover for you so that you wouldn't have to be spending your 21st birthday you know, serving gnocchi and stuff to, to people. But the woman who was going to cover for you uh, got sick at the last minute, and so she couldn't do it. <clears throat> and so you appear for work, and um, it's a restaurant that you've been working on for a few months, and you've noticed there's a, there's a kind of ritual that happens every day. At 8 o'clock sharp, the manager takes dinner to the, man, to the owner of the restaurant, whom no one has ever seen except for the manager. And every day they take up exactly the same thing. It's a chicken dish, uh, half a bottle of wine, a carafe of coffee, and some vegetables on the side. And a couple of minutes before 8, the manager puts it all in a trolley, takes it upstairs where the owner is, and comes back. An hour later, he goes up, picks up the trolley, which has been left outside, brings it back down, and that's it. And every single day, this happens. And uh, cooks, there's been a number of cooks, they've tried serving different kinds of chicken dishes, to see if you know, the, the owner likes one more than the other. And there's never any single response. The one cook tries to serve roast chicken for the whole week, and he doesn't hear anything back. And so nobody even knows like, who's up there eating this chicken, but it goes up, the tray comes back empty. And in this day, your birthday, about half an hour before 8, the manager gets sick. And he has to go to the emergency room. And just as he's leaving, he turns to you and says, you know, can you please take the tray to the owner? And it will be all ready. Knock on the door, give him the tray, and then you know an hour later you just pick it up. And so, you know, you're a little curious about finally meeting the owner. And it's a, it's a very rainy day, and so the restaurant's actually not that, that busy, so you think it's, you know, it's a good time for you to go up. The cooks get the tray ready, you go up in the elevator, and you knock on the door of room 604. And at first, nothing happens, and you're standing there for about you know, 20 seconds or so, and you're about to knock again when the door just opens from the inside. And there's a... a Man, an older man, very, very dapper, very well-dressed, short. He's a bit shorter than you. And he just gestures for you to come in. And so you bring in the 
his dinner. And at first he, he doesn't say anything, and so you start to explain that the manager has uh, become sick, and he had to go to the, the hospital. And the, the owner says, oh, you know, that's, that's not good. That's not good at all. And you say, you know, it, it, he was really in pain, so he even thought it might be appendicitis. And, you know, his, his uh, wrinkles uh, get really more pronounced. And he says, no, that's definitely not good at all. But I'm so glad that you have brought my dinner for me today. And he invites you to, to sit down. And, you know, the whole thing is kind of weird, so you're not sure you want to be there for too long. Um, but he is the owner. He is paying you. And um, when you say, well, can I just bring in your, your dinner and leave it for you? He says, oh, sure, sure, if, if you wish. And you think, well, what do you mean if I wish? I was, you don't say this, but you're thinking this. You know, I was asked to do this. So, you know, you, you, you set it aside. And... At first, he's just looking at the dinner like he's appreciating it. And then he looks at you and he says, you know, how, how old are you? And you say, well, 21 um, now. And he says, as of how long? And you say, well, today is actually my birthday. And he says, that's very auspicious. So why don't you sit down with me and let's, let's have a toast to your birthday? And you think, well, okay. Okay, if I must. So you sit down on the couch, kind of on the perched on the edge of the couch, and um, he serves some wine and, and to, to his glass, and he offers that to you, and he takes another glass from the cupboard, from the cupboard, and he gives a toast that says something like, you know, to you on your birthday, may there be no dark shadows in your life. I think it's a little bit of an odd toast. But you're willing you know, to go with it. So you take a little sip of the wine. And then he says, you know, I really do think this is a very auspicious event, the fact that you're here today and you've brought me this very nice, warm dinner. So I would like to do something for you. Now you're starting to get really worried. And you say, you know, really, you don't, you don't have to. I mean, I just brought your dinner as I was asked to do. And so there's... You, there's nothing that you need to do for me. And he says, no, 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 I really, I, I insist. This is really no trouble for me. And what I would like to do is to grant you a wish. And you say, any wish? And he says, yes, any, any wish at all. But think about it very carefully because you only have one and you can't take it back. And so you get quiet for a moment, and you, you're realizing, you know, there, there's, he's probably not going to harm you in any way. So you ask again, I can make any wish? And he says, yes. And so you think about it for a moment. And he's just waiting patiently. He's kind of balancing on the, the front of his feet, and he's kind of just swinging back and forth as he's waiting. And he says, well, do you have a wish or not? And you tell him your wish. And he says, are you sure? That seems a little unusual for someone your, your age. I mean, don't you want to be better looking? Don't you want to have uh, more money? Don't you want to um, have things, be more intelligent? 
And you say, well, you know, sure, I would like those things, but I don't actually know what that would be like. Who would I be if I had those things? And so, you know, I'm still trying to figure out life, you say. And he says, well, you know, if this is your wish, you're like, you know, I can, I can wish for something else. And he says, no, 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 it's, it's no trouble at all. I'll, I'll grant you your wish. And so once again, his, his, his wrinkles, you know, his forehead get really, really furrowed. And he's kind of looking somewhere in the distance. You can't quite tell at what. And he just claps his hands uh, very sharply, very fast. And he says, there, your wish has been granted. And you say, already? He's like, yeah, already, your, your wish has been granted. So don't you worry about a thing. I'll eat my dinner. I'll bring the trolley back, I'll put it out an hour from now, and you can just take it. So you thank him, and you leave. You go downstairs, and everybody wants to know what happened, what does he look like. He said, I, I, really, I didn't really take a very good look at him. You just change the subject, and you're done. Now, 20 years pass, let's say, 25, and you're speaking to someone about this day, and, of course, what do they want to know? What did you wish for? And you say, well, you know, you really shouldn't tell anybody your wishes. And the other person says, okay, you know, I really, I won't try to, to get it out of you, but I'd just like to know one thing. Did your wish come true? And did you regret it? And you kind of hesitate and say, well, Yes, the, the answer to the first question is yes and no. Yes, it did become granted, but it's, it's not done yet. And so the other person says, so you mean there's, it's going to take time, like cooking? And you said, yes, exactly. Well, did you regret it? And then you, you get very quiet. And you say, well, you know, I have a really good life. I am married. I have two kids, I play tennis a couple days a week, I drive a nice car, and the other person says, well, it sounds like a really nice life. And you say, well, even if the, my, my bumper is dented, and the guy says, the, the other person says, you know, that sounds like a great sticker, you know, life is good even with, with dents in it. And you, you say, well, yes. But the point that I'm trying to make is that you can always, you can only be yourself. You can never be anybody else. And the other person says, you know, that would also make a really good bumper sticker. (laughs) Wherever you go, you can only be yourself. And you just nod and say, yes, that's it. That's exactly right. And then you ask the other person, well, you tell me. What would you have wished for? And the other person thinks about it for a while and says, you know, 21 is kind of far away now. Um, I can't think of anything. And you say, are you sure you can't think of a single thing that you would have wished for? And they say, no, not really, not a single thing. And then you look them straight in the eyes and you say, that's because you've already made your wish. So I wanted to talk about the eight awarenesses of enlightened beings. And it is said to be the last teaching of the Buddha, uh, according to Mahayana Buddhism. 
And there's actually two sutras that speak of the Buddha's last days. Uh, one in Pali, which is really from the Theravada tradition. It's in the canon. It's, in fact, the longest sutra in the Pali canon. And there's one um, in Sanskrit that's the Mahayana version. And the Pali canon sutra is called The Great Discourse on the Final Nirvana. And it, it has a lot of teachings in it. Um, the Buddha speaks about doctrine. It's almost as he, he was trying to wrap things up, you know, clarify. He speaks about discipline. And it describes in quite great detail his last days. And at one point, he's talking to um, Ananda, and he says to him, you know, a Tathagata has the power to remain for a whole eon, which really means for the entirety of their lifespan, if someone just asks. And he says this three times, hinting that if Ananda says something, the Buddha will stay. He will not die because he knows that he's dying. And Ananda, for some reason, just doesn't get the, the, the hint. And he doesn't say anything. And I've often thought, you know, imagine the poor guy afterwards realizing that it was in his power to have the Buddha stay longer and he missed the boat. Um, but so he doesn't say anything. And so the Buddha, the sutra says, uh, deliberately renounces his remaining lifespan, and says, I'm going to die in three months. And uh, as that time approaches, he gives what's called the last admonition. And he says, this is what I know. This is the teaching that I know that I've experienced. And this is what you should learn and practice and cultivate. And it's what's called the 37 aids to enlightenment, which is actually mentioned in that chapter of the the Malakirti Sutra that we're studying for, for Ango, one of the chapters. And this 37 aids are the four foundations of mindfulness, the four right efforts, the four constituent, constituents of psychic power, the five faculties, the five powers, the seven factors of enlightenment, and the Noble Eightfold Path. And I won't go through the whole list, but there's basically slightly different combinations of what is really the seven factors of enlightenment, which are mindfulness, investigation into phenomena, looking at what things are, energy, bliss, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And so he says you should learn these, you should cultivate them and practice them. And then just before he dies, he asks the assembly, do you have any questions? And nobody says anything. And then he asks again, do you have any questions? Again, no one says anything. And then he says, you know, if out of respect for me, you're not speaking, have a friend ask a question for you. It's really nice uh, kind of um, encouragement that he's, he's giving them. And still nobody says anything. And so First, Ananda, and then he says that this means that everyone understands my teaching perfectly. And then he gives his last words. And he says, Behold now, friends, I exhort you. All compounded things are subject to vanish. Strive with earnestness. And a a different translation says, Experience is disappointing. It is through vigilance that you will succeed. And then he dies shortly afterwards. 
Now, in the Mahayana version, which was written, um, it's thought around the third century, and it's more commonly known as the Nirvana Sutra or the Parinirvana Sutra, Mahaparinirvana Sutra. It's a, it's a very important sutra in the Mahayana because it deals with the concept of Buddha nature, which does not appear actually in the Pali Canon. And so, you know, we're so, so steeped in these teachings. In, in Zen, we speak of Buddha nature all the time. And the um, Tathagata Garbha, the womb of the Buddha, which is really the potential to achieve enlightenment, and we hear that all of us have that potential, right? But the Buddha actually never spoke of it this way. It was really until um, three centuries later that this concept appeared. And so you, you, you see how after the death of, of a religion's founder, uh, the teachings are shaped, of course. They're shaped by subsequent generations. The same, of course, has been true in Christianity quite heavily. And why is this relevant for us? Because we are indeed steeped in these teachings. The koans are filled with them, the sutras are filled with them, and because they shape our understanding of our practice and realization, our understanding of what, it, what is needed, and what is the manifestation then of an awakened life. So they shape our view, right, view, which therefore determines our aspiration, which determines our actions, determines our speech, you know, etc., as it is laid out in the Noble Eightfold Path. And Zen comes directly out of these teachings. And we were speaking yesterday in the retreat with um, Jacqueline Mandel, which was on appearance and emptiness. You know, shunyata, emptiness, also does not appear in, in the Pali Canon. It's a Mahayana teaching. The Buddha spoke of no self. And so it was Nagarjuna who really uh, referred to it first as the classical concept of no self, meaning no inherent um, self-nature. And he extended it to, that, to include all dharmas. So all things are empty. But this was, again, this was hundreds of years after the Buddha's life. And it is Nagarjuna who, who equates that with um, codependent arising, the 12-fold link of causation, which, I mean, the teachings already existed, but he equates it with emptiness. And, you know, in a retreat, I think it was last year, I asked at one point, uh, there were a number of questions and, and people had split up into groups, and I asked them um, about enlightenment and how they related to it in their lives. And when they came back, you know, everyone was kind of um, unsure, shy, almost apologetic. Like, you know, I'm not so sure about this enlightenment thing. Some of them were even kind of annoyed <laughs> that I had asked the question. And I was listening to a talk by Kandra Rinpoche the other day, and she just says it quite bluntly. She asks, how long do you think it will take you? By next Sunday, you'll become enlightened? In other words, what do you think is possible? What do you wish for? What do you want out of this practice, out of your life? 
because what we wish for is what we will define as the possible. What we wish for may be exactly what we get. So are we clear about what we want? And if we are, let's not be shy, shy about it. I, I, I said this at the session in Buffalo. If your, your um, aspiration is to realize yourself for the sake of your liberation and that of all beings, you should shout it from the rooftops. Why not? Why is it okay to voice your aspiration to have children, for example? To make it big in the stock market? to travel all over the world, all sorts of different aspirations that we voice or not. Why are those okay? And it's not okay to say, I want to wake up completely. I want to put an end to suffering completely in this lifetime. And then she asks, Kandra Rinpoche asks, you know, what is all this for? All these skillful means, the theme of our, of our ango, all the liturgy, the study, the training, study of the mind. We, we say, we hear all the time, they are for the alleviation of suffering. Who's suffering? How much? And what makes these skillful means skillful? It's, it's our, our faith in them what allows them to, to become skillful. Is there something inherent in them that is skillful? If I don't believe in a particular skillful means, or if I have trouble with it, let's say, liturgy, I'm resistant to it, or I just don't, it doesn't draw me, is it still skillful? And again, what do we wish for? And now the, the setting in the, in the Nirvana Sutra, the Mahayana version, is very much like the, the um, other Mahayana Sutras, the Lotus Sutra, the Malakirti, the Flower Garland. There are these, these vast assemblies of billions of billions of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas upon billions and billions of worlds. And they are all gathered to witness the Buddha's uh, passing. And he says, very similarly, he says, I am about to enter nirvana. Does anybody have a question? Is there anything that you would like to ask? And as he says this, he also he emanates rays of light you know, from his forehead that wash away the evil deeds of all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas who are present. And they are amazed, as I think you would be if that happened. <laughs> And so they're crying and lamenting, and they definitely want to ask the Buddha to, to remain in the world. And so there's a, a sense of, of urgency, you might say, in this part of the sutra. But it's, um, well, this is what it says. The great disciples were unlimited in mind and could act as they willed. They saw through all illusions, and all their sense organs were subdued. Like great Naga rulers, the, the serpent um, rulers. They were perfect in great virtue. They were accomplished in the wisdom of emptiness and perfect in their own attainments. They were like the sandalwood forest with sandalwood all around, or like a lion king surrounded by lions. 
They were the true sons and daughters of the Buddha. Early in the morning, when the sun had just risen, they were up from their beds in the places where they lived and were about to use their toothbrushes. And it really says this. (laughs) When they encounter the light that arose from the Buddha's person. So you're you're brushing your teeth, and all of a sudden there's this, this light. And they said to one another, hurry up with bathing and gargling and be clean. And I was thinking, you know, we used to say this to, to the registrar. Uh, well, not quite like this. But we used to say to the registrar at the beginning of every retreat, you know, people, you're the, fir- the first person they're going to see, that people are going to see when you, they walk in the door. So can you please like, make sure your clothes are clean, you know, that you're clean, you know, comb your hair, uh, be clean. You know, it's, it's, it's important. And what a, what a kind of a touchingly human detail. You know, you, you, you have this, again, vast universe, almost like the Arabian Nights, you know, with these floating palaces and these uh, jeweled banners and parasols and, and this little sentence there, you know, hurry up to, and you're gargling and <laughs> be clean, be ready for the Buddha's death. And, um, and so they say, and their hair stood on end all over their body, and their blood so, blood so ran that they looked like palasa flowers, which is a very bright red uh, Southeast Asian flower. And tears filled their eyes, which expressed great pain. So they're very upset that the Buddha is going to, to die, and they ask him if he will remain. And so then he gives a number of teachings, and 600 pages worth of, of teachings. <laughs> Uh, and among them is the eight awarenesses. Um, and the thing is, I couldn't actually find a place in the sutra, and I, I did not read every line of the 600 pages, but I couldn't find any place where they're uh, listed in their entirety. They're referred to in a couple of places, but they're not gone into in detail. And I'm surmising here, but I, I think that is referring to a, another sutra, a very short sutra, Chinese sutra uh, called the Discourse on the Eight Realizations of Great Beings. And apparently in Thich Han's lineage, they actually have a practice of memorizing it and chanting it um, every day. And so it's very much based on the seven factors, but the wording is a little different. And so here it says that these eight realizations, eight awakenings, eight awarenesses, are the awareness that the world is impermanent. And interestingly, the, the example that they give is that political regimes always fall. That's the first thing you read after you read the awareness and how um, timely for, for us to draw comfort from that. Awareness that the world is impermanent. Awareness that more desire brings more suffering. That the human mind is always searching for possessions and never feels fulfilled that laziness or indolence is an obstacle to practice. Now remember, these are the the last teachings of the Buddha, according to the Mahayana. Ignorance is the cause of the endless cycle of birth and death. Poverty creates hatred and anger. The five sense desires lead to conflict. And the last one, the fire of birth and death, creates suffering. And the version that we're... um, familiar with, at least that I had heard before, um, because it's what uh, Master Dogen, was Master Dogen's last teaching. 
and he, he comments on it very briefly. Uh, it's, it's slightly different, and it's, it's pithy. It says, um, having few desires is the first one, knowing how to be satisfied, enjoying serenity and tranquility, exerting meticulous effort, not forgetting right thought, your aspiration, your intention, practicing samadhi, cultivating wisdom, and avoiding idle talk. That's the last one in, in this version. So someone, someone thought this was important enough to place, to present as the very last teaching of the Buddha. Avoid idle talk. Isn't that interesting? There's actually no mention of impermanence in this version, not explicit. And what you're left with is don't talk idly. And what would it be like if the teaching had been something else? I mean, the, the previous version that I said was, in fact, impermanence. All things are subject to pass. Right? What was happening in, and I don't know if it was Dogen or if it was someone before him, what was happening in their sangha that this is what they thought they should stress? And once again, to, to, um, to not take lightly these, um, these teachings and these differences because they're shaping what we are studying now, what we, are, what we say is important to practice, it's important to hold in our minds. So 800 years ago or 2,000 years ago. And many, many of these these lists are similar, are very similar. This is very similar to the Paramitas, and it includes aspects of the Eightfold Path. So there's a, there's a lot of overlap. And then how at certain times certain things are highlighted, certain things are stressed, perhaps as skillful means. And as is true of many of these uh, lists, it's not meant to be sequential or only sequential. Think of it more like a web, like a spiral, like a a drop of ink that spreads, coloring everything that it touches. In fact, Master Dogen says that each of these um, awarenesses contains every other one, so there's 64 of them. And we can take them as qualities of the Buddha, We can take them as the description of an awakened life. We can take them as practices. And Maizumi Roshi, in his commentary to these, asks an important question. How do we relate to them? Which is what what I was saying before. Because how we relate to them is how we will practice them. And you know, so coming to a place like this, there are so many levels, right, in which we can enter. Maybe you're just interested in meditation. You're interested in quieting your mind. You're interested in not being in pain anymore. And I think all of us in the beginning and perhaps for a while and perhaps always, kind of we pick and choose, what, what resonates, what draws us in, what we can relate to better. But I think it's really important as practitioners on, on the path to, to really reflect on all of these 
myriad teachings and and how we ex- how we not just experience them how do we live them in our in our personal practice so if we see these as the qualities of the buddha the historical buddha let's say shakyamuni as well as the tathagata the world honored one then how do we relate to both of these figures do we relate to shakyamuni buddha you know every day several times a day we bow to the Buddha on the altar. But what about the man, the founder of Buddhism, of this tradition that we're practicing? The man who struggled and practiced and struggled until he realized himself. And do we draw inspiration from that fact? The fact that he was a man I know I, I do. I've thought about that many, many times. I'm thinking he was a human being, so if he could do it, I can do it. I think that with my teacher, he's a human being. If he can do it, I can do it. It may take me a little longer than it took the Buddha, but that's okay. I mean, what else would I do with my life? Or does he seem distant and unreachable? It, it, there's no way, there's no possibility for me to um, attain, to awaken to what he awakened to. So how do we relate to that, our original teacher? And how do we relate to the world-honored one, this, this omniscient Buddha, of the Mahayana Sutras, who knows the life of every human being that has ever lived, will ever live, in every conceivable universe, past, present, and future. When we're, we're reading these sutras, how do, how do we live them? Do we tune them out? Do we think, you know, this is, it's a nice story, but let me just get to the teachings. But why is it that probably all religious traditions seem to resort often to myths and parables and and what seem like fantastical stories? Even the koans, which are so direct, so pithy, a number of them are based on folk tales, like Senjo and her soul, my favorite koan of all time. It's a, it's a Chinese folktale. The stories of divas and land deities and there's um, speaking foxes and lines from the sutras. And so many of the Buddhist teachings are so practical, right? I mean, you do this so that that doesn't arise. Or don't do this so that that does arise. Cultivate samadhi. Practice the precepts. Study and, and train your mind. Generate loving kindness, it, there's, there's something for us to do. So what is the purpose of these multiverse assemblies? Could it be because putting a tight frame on this is useful to understand it, but it can't possibly be the whole picture. 
Could it be that when these teachers say, avoid idle talk and cultivate samadhi and have few desires, they can do so because they are firmly standing on the ground of reality, which is exactly that ground of turning parasols and serpent kings and queens, jeweled necklaces and light emanating Buddhas. Could it be that because what we can see and hear and touch is, is the tiniest sliver of reality? And because it is skillful every once in a while to just blow open the walls of the mind. You're standing in the middle of hundreds of acres of, of open fields. We, we've built ourselves a little shed, like a broom closet, and we've called it home. And it feels tight in there, but we're used to it, and it's also comforting. And we're so used to it that every once in a while, if we get a glimpse of what we could call the real world, or the whole world, as these sutras do uh, give us, we think, you know, but this is just a picture. This is just a story. It's not very believable, but okay, I'll go along with it. So far. Unless, unless one day we, we, we've had enough of living in a closet. And we set out exploring, and maybe we, we venture out and we meet another traveler. That says, you know, you actually don't need as much as you think you do. Life is easier when you know what you want. When you're not always reaching, grasping, holding. And you do have to exert effort, certainly, but the right kind of effort. And you have to know why you're exerting it. And they say, you know, it's good if you practice tranquility, if you let your mind just settle so that you can focus, you can rest in that natural, bright state of mind. It's good if you cultivate clarity. It's good if you really do understand how things are. And if, in case you, you run across anybody else, don't let your energy scatter. Avoid empty talk, because it will leave you empty. And so these sutras are describing, you know, in a very vivid way, perhaps the most vivid way possible, the universe inside. Which is just a way of speaking. There isn't actually inside or outside, but they're describing the universe, universes, that are our realm, that are our kingdom, our true home. They're, they're describing that place where there is no doubt. There is no question whatsoever that you belong. Because if you are yourself, the whole universe, how is it possible to be a part to be outside, to be other. So there's 
lot more to say about these later. Um, let me just share with you this. It's a, it's a song, actually, an Eskimo song, and it's called Magic Words. <clears throat> In the very earliest time, when both people and animals lived on Earth, a person could become an animal if they wanted to, and an animal could become a human being. And sometimes there were people, and sometimes animals, and there was no difference. All spoke the same language. That was the time when words were like magic. The human mind had mysterious powers. A word spoken by chance might have strange consequences. It would suddenly come alive, and what people wanted to happen could happen. All you had to do was say it. Nobody could explain this. That's the way it was. This is still the time when words are like magic that can be used for good or for ill. They can have strange consequences. And the fact is that we do all share a language. Perhaps, I think it is safe to say that we share a wish, fundamentally, to be at ease, to not suffer, to know in our bones that we belong, to know who we are, that we're not apart, that we're not flawed. And it is still true that words can come alive suddenly, that the human mind has mysterious powers, just waiting, just waiting to be tapped. And that all we have to do is to awaken to these words, these magic words, these very ordinary words that have enormous power. That all we have to do is to awaken to that power. And I think it is very true that nobody can explain how and if this will happen. But whether we believe in it or not, and trust it or not, fulfill it or not, it's the way it is. For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.